Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Morning everyone, so good to have you join me this week and I'm really excited to bring to you my conversation that I had with Lara Bryden who is the absolute authority in women's hormones. For those of you who don't know Lara, and I don't imagine there'll be many of you, Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and best-selling author of the books Period Repair Manual and Hormone Repair Manual, which are practical guides to treating period problems with nutrition, supplements and bioidentical hormones. With a strong science background, Lara sits on several advisory boards and is the lead author of a 2020 paper published in a peer-reviewed medical journal. She has more than 20 years experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause and many other hormone and period related problems. Lara is such an amazing woman and I feel really blessed to be able to call her a friend and Lara and I know each other from the Ancestral Health Society of New Zealand and she is my absolute go-to with anything hormone related. And so today on the podcast Lara and I delve into her hormone repair manual and we go over some of the really common hormone related challenges that women can experience as they head into the perimenopause and menopause phase or as Lara loves to call it the second puberty which I love because it's kind of more like it's not like that we're down and out once we hit that perimenopause this is just another phase of our life and a strong and awesome one we chat all about that we delve into a bit around the ketogenic diet for women fasting for women and you might be surprised to hear what Lara thinks about that and some of the real practical tips with which diet and supplements can help kind of move the lever like what is the real low-hanging fruit so without delay please enjoy my conversation with Lara Bryden Lara Morena how are you hello good morning thanks for having me Oh, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to chat to me. I am I was just saying, obviously, before we jumped on that I just feel a little bit more nervous talking to you than I might <laughs> someone I don't know. And it, it's crazy, right? And I think possibly because over the years, you've been the person that I've turned to for anything hormone related. And whilst, you know, when we chat about it, I'm always in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, would Lara think that this was a ridiculous question to ask or <laughs> am I so like off on a completely different tangent? So, um, um, but this is great actually, because obviously the period repair manual has been such a, a Bible for so many of us practitioners and also of course clients to be able to kind of navigate their hormone issues, I suppose, earlier in life. And then you've really just like filled a big gaping hole with yeah. regards to all of the questions around, okay, so what happens next? Yeah. In second puberty from Sick. our late, late thirties, early forties, which I must say is coming as a shock to some of my followers. I have a little bit of negative pushback I've had is actually from women in their late thirties saying, Oh no, don't, no, don't tell me this. You know, I'm already undergoing this transition because I haven't had kids yet. Or that, you know, they, we have this, a lot of stigma and 
fear around the word perimenopause. But one of my messages I want to get say right off the begin at off the top, you can still become pregnant in perimenopause, especially the earlier stages of perimenopause. So it's yeah. that's important. You know, it's a transition, but it's it doesn't necessarily mean the immediate end of fertility. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because no, so with your book, and I'll just dive right in. Yeah. Um, I really loved chapter two. So, and I, and I understand that, you know, you were unsure whether or not you'd put chapter two in, which is all about like the woman's experience and, and their own emotions in and around menopause, you know? And, yeah. and I think part of the reason I loved it so much was because I, it so resonated with me. Huh. And what you say about the perimenopause starts at say 35-ish, you yeah. know, generally speaking, and obviously that's not true for all women, but no. it is a bit of a shock. I can understand that pushback particularly because, you know, as we've grown up and as we understand kind of menopause, well, shoot, we may as well hang up our hats and go home. <laughs> In fact, of course, it's nothing like that. And thanks for the feedback about the emotional side of it. I had to be strong-armed into writing that. I didn't write it. And my publisher yeah. said, you have to write something about the emotions of it, the stigma of it, the shame, the everything, the invisibility. And the positive sides as well. And so that was, in fact, just to touch base on the fact that we, you and I are friends, right? When we were at our little in-person together back in July, I was ruminating on that chapter. I was thinking oh. about, I was talking with you guys. I was trying to feel my way. What, you know, what, what works for women? What do we need to hear when we're in yeah. this kind of starting on this vulnerable, I would say potentially vulnerable part of our lives, both in terms of health and emotionally. To some extent. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I think that um, that whole vulnerability thing probably it comes from this whole idea that menopause is something to be feared rather than something to potentially um, is second puberty is a bit of a which when you talk about second puberty, I often think kind of new beginnings, you know, yeah. which, which is how you framed it throughout the book. Yeah, well, I'll share something because I, I don't know, you probably know, but your listeners won't know. I'm a evolutionary biologist by training. Originally, I did publish a scientific paper in evolutionary biology way back in a previous um, epoch. <laughs> um, and so I see everything through that lens. And as readers will discover in the book, I have a, a, some sections about that evolutionary mismatch, the evolution of menopause. And one of the things I've come to see now, especially now that I'm pretty much very close to in menopause, I'm almost through that, you know, almost past that one year, past my final period. Now I see that actually the state of being female, there's a baseline state, which is then childhood mm. and menopause. And that mm. actually accounts for four or five decades of our lives, mm. at, depending on how long we live. And then there's our reproductive years, which has a first puberty and a second puberty. And that's, you know, three and a half, maybe four at the most decades. And so now I'm starting to see that as kind of a special time. We've got our default non-reproductive. And then yeah. we've got the fact that we shift into reproductive gear for a few decades. And that almost like being reproductive has its own, is, is the special state rather than being non-reproductive. And of course, yeah. being reproductive is great. Like, as you know, from my first book, and I'm a cheerleader for est estrogen and progesterone. I think they're amazing. They're important for building metabolic reserve, not just for making a baby. So having three or four decades of robust menstrual cycling is beneficial for us later in life as well. But it's, it's been an important shift, like not, yeah, just to really debunk the idea that when we reach menopause, we stop being a woman or something like that. That's obviously completely 
wrong. Yeah, and I think part of it is when I hear people discuss it, sometimes it, what I hear a lot of people, and this is not necessarily just men, they're like, so women post-menopause, or, or they're just like men. You know, no. and, and the, I know, I know. And I just, every time I hear that, I'm like, that is so wrong, it's you know? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you say about the reproductive years being the, the kind of special time, because it's not just what's going on with our hormones. If you think about our lives, you know, like we're growing, we're developing, we're forming relationships, we're having children, we're following careers, we're running households, you know, so all in and amongst what's going on hormonally month on month and year on year, You've got all of these life changes as well. It's a busy time. <laughs> it is. And, it, and just physiologically, um, I'll just touch on this. You know, it's an energy intensive time. Yeah. Women, the way I like to frame it is during our reproductive years, we have a higher metabolic rate. We require more calories. Yeah. And post-reproductive, we require fewer calories. And rather yeah. than seeing that as a liability, I've come to see that, especially from an evolutionary perspective, as kind of an asset maybe we we move into a a leaner you know more efficient mode of metabolism and i think if we can sort of embrace that yeah it's it's good and just one thing i want to say right off in case any listeners are in any doubt um menopause evolved and is not just an accident of living too long that's one of my i really need to debunk that we have this idea that all humans used to all die by 45 of course that's just not true the lifespan was was you know 40 45 but life sorry the life um expectancy sorry as mm. just statistical average was 45 but the lifespan like the biological lifespan of the human organism has been 70 80 for a long time yeah and a lot of people don't actually know that because you do yeah. hear quite often you know humans would never evolve to live as long as we did um interesting Lauren, i do want you to describe um for us just this whole idea around the grandmother hypothesis and like i have seen a couple of scientific papers that look at the calorie i, I can't recall whether it was a calorie intake or it was the gathering of calories from different members of families or tribes back in kind of that evolutionary ancestral time if you like and it appeared that the grandmothers actually gathered or accounted for many more calories than other people in the tribe, which I think kind of fits really nicely with what you've described as the grandmother hypothesis. Yeah. So of course, I mean, the only data we have is from existing forager groups, Mm. the Hadza and a couple of others. And what is found, and I cite this research in the book so people can look there for those um, references. And there's um, there's other information about the grandmother hypothesis, but you're right. So it's about calories gathered. So Mm. women, and we know this intuitively, right? Like women in their 50s, 60s, even into their 70s, according to this research, are very productive, not reproductive, mm. but they're very good at what they do in terms of gathering food and they give a lot of it away mm. to their grandchildren and the, the, the group in general. So the grandmother hypothesis states that from an evolutionary perspective, which is about passing on individual genes, of course, mm. that at some point in a woman's life history, it becomes more advantageous in terms of passing on genes to switch modes, to stop making your own babies yeah. and start s- supporting the, the group. And there's actually so much to that story. So I will, I only talk about it kind of briefly in the book, but I, I want to alert um, anyone who's interested in this topic to a book that I cite, which is called, um, if I can get it right, <laughs> The Slow Moon 
Klein. So this, yeah, we could put it in the show notes. Yeah. She's a historian, Susan Mattern, and she builds the case that not only is menopause advantageous from an evolutionary perspective, it would have been selected for, but actually the way she frames it is that a longer human lifespan was evolved because of selection for post-reproductive women. Basically, women, mm. you know, were selected to live longer because of how beneficial they were. And men just got to come along for the ride because we share genes, basically. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah. it was the impetus. Menopause was the impetus for the evolution of a longer human lifespan. And I just, once I read that, I just, that just changed everything for me. I mean, that just feels feels true. I mean, it's, it's obviously something that the research needs to keep looking at, but it really yeah. changes the experience of menopause when we know we come from a long lineage of grandmothers, even if we're not a grandmother ourselves, which is, I'm not, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. Like I, I know that I have all these grandmothers going back in, t- you know, probably hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, and then just um, before we move on from uh, chapter two, Obviously, you were gathering kind of, you know, informally surveying your audience to ask them about their experiences, their expectations. Was there anything surprising in that, Lara, for you? The level of fear and shame Mm. was, I mean, I knew it, I guess. I knew it because I felt it myself. But there was the odd outlier. Like, there was definitely a few people, a few women who said, oh, I'm looking forward to it. Especially if they've had difficult periods, they're looking forward to the end of that. Yeah. But I would say the overarching feeling was I'm scared. I'm, you know, worried. I'm scared of symptoms. I'm scared of becoming invisible. Mm. You know, I'm scared of being old. And as I, which is, gave me even more impetus to put the book out into the world and to try to dispel some of that. Because one of the things I do, one of my other arguments in the book is that perimenopause or second puberty is not actually about aging like it happens alongside aging of course but it's from what i can see in the research the timing of period stopping is genetically hardwired mm. and we we inherit that from our you know immediate ancestors so i mean just to to, to really stay on that for a minute it doesn't mm. mean like if you go through if your period stop at 47 mm. That does not mean it's be, that's because you've been unhealthy or something like that. You know, it's, yeah. I've, I've known, I've had even close friends who are very healthy, you know, fit, eat well, everything's going well. And that their periods stop in that part of the bell curve because the normal age for period stopping is anywhere between 45 to 55. Okay. And yeah, so it kind of, I think as a women, I think a lot, we sort of internalize this idea that we, we should, if we're healthy enough, we can stop it from happening or we can mm. delay it or something. Mm. And that's not how it works. Lara, do you have any idea of, um, you know, we're looking at like young girls now going through puberty potentially earlier than they have, you know, in the decades beforehand, or as I understand it, like with periods starting earlier, potentially to do with their body composition changes and and things like that. Insulin. I think a lot of it's to do with kind of that. um, Well, I would, that's from my reading of some of the research. Yeah, that that sort of overfed state, that high insulin state. Yeah, um, hormonally contributes to earlier puberty. Yeah. yeah, and have you seen or or know of any research where, alongside that kind of higher insulin state, then um, any more a woman reporting more issues around their periods, and then also, of course, coming out the out the other side. Listen to that. Coming, <laughs> yeah. no, it's fine. Going into yeah. perimenopause, like, is it happening earlier? Have things changed over time for women? 
That is a really good question. Okay, so I'm not aware of that research. Look, I'll just say there are a few things that can bring menopause slightly yeah. earlier, certainly smoking, you know, illness. There's a little, and there's some evidence that exposure to some environmental toxins can bring it a little bit earlier. It wouldn't surprise me if insulin resistance affects the timing of menopause, but I'm not aware of any research on that. But I will say that insulin resistance affects the experience of perimenopause yeah. big time and menopause because it's a, it becomes a vicious cycle because, and for reasons I explain in the book and to do with energy in the brain, having insulin resistance can make the perimenopause transition a lot rougher in terms of symptoms a lot riskier in terms of cardiovascular health and bone health. And at the same time, the shift to menopause is a shift to a higher risk of insulin resistance. Yeah. So you saw in the book, I was like a broken record about it really is the time more than ever to identify and reverse insulin resistance because that can make a huge difference both to symptoms and long-term outcomes. Yeah. And it's Lara, is that, you know, I often, when I'm sitting down talking to clients, they're like, you know, I've changed nothing with my eating. I'm still exercising the same amount, if not even more, yet nothing is shifting in terms of my weight. Um, yep. And it is in and around that perimenopause kind of time that they start yep. reporting this. You mentioned insulin resistance. Is that the basis of that, do you think? We get a change in body shape. So basically, I talk about testosterone dominance. So Okay, look, I think we can start to have changes even in those earlier phases of perimenopause when progesterone mm. drops, because progesterone is very supportive for thyroid and metabolism in some ways. But then when estrogen starts to mm. drop, then we get a shift insulin resistance. We get a test, um, higher androgens shining mm -hmm. through, especially if there's been any underlying problem with androgen mm. excess. And when the female body is exposed to higher androgens, we gain weight around the middle. So there is a shift to a more apple shape androgen type shape yeah. with menopause. That is true for everyone to some extent, a thickening of the waist. Yeah. And I guess my position on it is pay attention to insulin, you know, do, you know, there's different strategies to try to minimize that and obviously maintain muscle mass and all the things I'm sure we're in agreement about. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't necessarily need to have the expectation that we maintain an hourglass figure in our 50s yeah, yeah. you know what I mean like yes be muscular be fit but it's I think it's unlikely that many women can have a body shape that they had when they were 25 it's just a hormonal change so I don't know I hope that sheds a bit of light but yes there's a thickening around the waist that is distressing to yeah women. so yep. interesting isn't it and I feel like this is one of the reasons why and this is probably a bit of a tangent but why being active and enjoying things outdoors and appreciating what your body can do rather than just focusing yeah. on what your body looks like as a you know this is one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate for active living I suppose Be yeah. so because that's where you're right that whole focus is I can no longer fit my jeans or my body shape's changed I feel terrible but you like the mental health benefits but also the physical benefits of being active like just far outweigh any of the um I guess the 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 potential negative impact of just you know your body changing i agree there's a quote in the book um which i think i've heard you say as well which is you know this is a time for getting stronger yeah. you know this is the time for getting outside you know building muscle that and that is definitely possible during this time so i, I agree that that's a, it's a better focus and one of the things like the things i said is in terms of this whole anti-aging and you know at the end of the day 
once I got here, it's like, actually, I have better things to do <laughs> than try to look 25. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not really on my radar as, I, I just, yeah, I want, I'm like, you. Yeah, I want to be outside. I want to be yeah. strong. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Lara, a couple of things just to pick up on. Um, you mentioned that, um, that part of the change around perimenopause is having, um, is with the drop in estrogen, there's a shift in testosterone. Is it, is it a balance issue or a ratio issue or actually does testosterone increase for women? Okay, it's mainly a ratio issue. So androgens in women, like androgens in men, are on a slow, gradual mm. decline. There's no, with women, there's no drop off of androgens the way there is of um, estrogen and progesterone. But interestingly, so it's a ratio mm. thing. It, there's a few aspects to it. So when estrogen and progesterone drop away, androgens shine through in part because something called sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG, SHBG mm -hmm. drops. And so that allows more androgens to shine yeah. through. Plus, and I learned this when I was writing the book, there is a bump up, an in a temporary increase in androgen production during perimenopause. And I suspect that's to provide the precursors because as I'm sure people know, androgens convert to estrogen. Yes. In fact, that's true for everyone. And men, that's how men get their estrogen. And they need estrogens, an um, essential hormone for life, actually, for the mitochondria, for everything. So um, all humans um, make estrogen in our peripheral mm. tissues from androgen to estrogen conversion with aromatase. During our special reproductive years, women also make a lot from our mm. ovaries. Which, um, And then even after menopause, there is some continuation of androgens and um, even estrogen from the ovaries. It's not like the ovaries stop working mm. at menopause. They, they keep working. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question in terms of androgens. It's both. It's the androgen shining through in terms of a ratio, mm. and it's a temporary increased production. Okay. And, you know, with estrogen, a lot of people, like I hear people talk about it, and they're, they're talking about going through perimenopause and menopause, and they're like, oh, you know, my hormones are all over the place. And you mentioned estrogen dropping away. But it's not necessarily like just a, a, um, a drop away with estrogen, no. is it? Oh, how nice would that be if it was a slow, gradual decline? <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I talk about this in the book, it's a roller coaster. Yeah. It's estrogen goes higher before it goes lower, but it's not just going higher, it's fluctuating wildly and that contributes to symptoms. So estrogen in our 40s can be three times higher at its mm. peak than it was in our 20s, which is kind of yeah. brutal um and then it it drops away you know every cycle up and down up and down and the way that causes symptoms is when estrogen's high it can stimulate a mast cell or histamine release that's where a lot of the i think estrogen dominant symptoms come from headaches fluid mm. hives <laughs> you know the whole thing breast yeah. swelling and then there's also you know just the direct estrogen stimulation and then there's the withdrawal from estrogen on the other side of the roller coaster and when estrogen drops that's where you can get night sweats. In fact, nights, pre-menstrual night sweats are one of probably the most common earlier signs of this change. Mm. And um, part of that's from that estrogen roller coaster. Part of it's from losing the, not losing entirely, but having lower levels of progesterone that would normally shelter us in our luteal yeah. phase. So I've heard yeah. you talk about progesterone and how it's so difficult to make in our reproductive years and it's even harder to make. And yeah. uh, as you know, as we get into perimenopause, what's going on, Lara? Yeah. Well, we make it with the corpus luteum, 
which that's the really only way we make it. We have a little baseline level from you know, the adrenal glands and the nervous system, but not a measurable amount. So most of it comes from a temporary gland, mm-hmm. that we, a two-week a gland that only lives for two weeks in the non-pregnant state that we can only make by achieving ovulation. And ovulation is not that, I'll say it's not that easy to do. Well, there's lots of ways to, lots of obstacles to ovulation, even when we're young. And then, of course, with perimenopause, part of the process is our follicles, ovarian follicles, become less active. So the corpus luteum is just going to be less robust. So a hormone that was already difficult to make in combination to estrogen becomes harder to make. Now, here's an interesting fun fact about progesterone. You know how we always see the estrogen and progesterone in there to scale? They kind of look about equal. In a healthy menstrual cycle, we make 100 times more progesterone. Yeah, than, es- than estrogen. So if you account for the units, it, it's, a, it's a massive amount. In fact, if you put them to scale on a chart, on a graph, you wouldn't be able to see estrogen because estrogen would be flat oh compared, to proge- compared to progesterone. Yeah. So it's, and it's an important hormone. It's not, as you, now you've got me started on progesterone, right. but you know, it's, um, it's not just for making a baby, right? Like we're calibrated to it, to having that either every month or during a pregnancy. And it has many benefits for the brain. It helps to stabilize the HPA adrenal axis. It supports thyroid directly and also indirectly by helping to modulate and normalize immune function and prevent autoimmune conditions, which is why when, and I talk about this in the book, when progesterone reduces in perimenopause, we can get an increased incidence of autoimmune conditions, especially autoimmune thyroid. Ah. That's that combination of perimenopause and Hashimoto's thyroid disease yeah. and insulin resistance. Do you remember the diagram I put in the book, like the three, the Venn yes. diagram with the three overlapping? That anyone who works with clients or patients is going to see that combination yeah. of that's that diagram started with me drawing it out for patients. It's like, okay, you've got Hashimoto's plus um, perimenopause plus insulin resistance, and this is how they're all interacting, and this is how to some extent each one is contributing to the other. Yeah. So from a clinical perspective, it's important to provide support or intervention for all three of those things. Yeah, so interesting. Like, so a couple of things. Um, the first one, when you, I'm thinking about that Venn diagram, you've got the insulin resistance and the Hashimoto's and the perimenopause. Of course, with insulin resistance, we're just less carb sensitive. So our body is unable to tolerate the same amount of carbohydrate but then you've got Hashimoto's and a lot of people argue that you need carbohydrate to help support thyroid function. So how, so how would you describe yeah. that, that relationship and, and the understanding? That's an interesting question. So I wouldn't, um, I'm just thinking about my 45 year old patient yeah. with both insulin resistance and Hashimoto's. I'm not, I think it's okay for her to go lower carb. I'm not worried about that yeah. at all. Yeah. You know, I think the main thing for Hashimoto's is actually more the gluten gut immune side of things they need to get off gluten usually in terms of i'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it but in terms of thyroid and lower carb well what i've seen is with with very low carb in younger women Mm. there can be um thyroid suppression so in terms of the mechanisms of that you know i'm not i'm not i haven't looked at it that closely but it can just basically um low t3 can be a just a marker of low you know, insufficient carbohydrate for that woman, mm. usually younger women. I don't know. Have you seen in the 40 something group, have you seen a low carb diet suppress thyroid? Cause that's, 
not you have oh, no yeah. it's such so interesting because i think a lot of the low carb is conflated with low calorie as well lara and particularly yeah. with women i work with and they're very active in part it in a lot of it is you know they're driven to be active and be really quite um practice a lot of rigid restraint around their diet and mm-hmm. and so i always wonder whether or not um when you know when people talk about low carb being really detrimental the first thing in my head is i bet you they're also low calorie particularly if we're talking about active women for sure yeah and the other thing is is i've seen people who are um who you know i've looked at a lot of the literature around thyroid um and ketogenic or low carb and whilst a couple of studies might report lower t3 um, there's no re- no report of low thyroid or subclinical thyroid um, symptoms so yeah and again just to clarify i mean a, a functionally kind of low t3 that's showing up for potentially all different reasons is not the same as Hashimoto's yeah. like you know the the autoimmune thyroid so just to be clear like I have no reason to think low carb would be detrimental to autoimmune thyroid if it, uh, I have many patients who are in that situation doing lower carb yeah it's interesting because I just on the topic of women's hormones and carb a little bit I may have the reputation I don't know of like being anti-low carb I'm not actually my my, I think my observation is that it's actually the young women group it's what I talk about I've talked about a bit more lately is um, women of young what's called young gynecological age Mm. who have not established robust menstrual cycles and especially if they're from an ancestry that might have had a lot of I guess an agrarian ancestry Mm. or there's a degree of um, the ovarian system is trying to calibrate itself to food supply and i think for some women there might be a stronger like the, the carbohydrate signal might be stronger for their hypothalamus in terms of you know is there enough food supply to establish a a robust menstrual cycle but even regardless of ancestry i find often by women's 40s they're not sensitive to losing their period to low carb the way they would have been like at 19 or something yeah so hopefully that gives a little bit of clarification i think like I think when we're talking about female physiology, it really probably probably this is the same as true for male physiology, but it really is context based. Like you have to think about age, mm. you know, menstrual history, whether there's insulin resistance or not, and all of that factors in. Yeah. To decisions about yeah how how to manage it with diet. And I think that's what I do notice with you, Lara, is because you do have that evolutionary biology background. You're often that's how you're kind of viewing this whole process, right? You're thinking about factors which potentially other people might not consider when they're making statements about carbohydrate and women and 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 a whole host of things yeah I think honestly just with the low carb debate just to speak to that a little bit I think kind of what got me going a couple times it got me blogging about it was I'd see like 40 something year old men on Twitter saying oh you know no it's low carbs perfect for everyone it's no it's not a problem it's you know you're just imagining that young women are losing their periods i'm like i felt like saying look okay the diet can't you the diet that works for you may not work for a 19 year old girl i mean that's that doesn't mean the diet is wrong Mm. it's just we have to think about the body that you know and its requirements yeah yeah yeah. totally um (laughs) it kind of got got my feminist kind of uh self fired up a couple yeah no i love it um now i kind of feel like i'm going a little bit over the place but what i want to get back to is yes conversation around insulin resistance and you mentioned that you know there are a couple of ways with which we can um figure out if we're insulin resistant can you kind of talk us through lara how we would how we would know if we're having symptoms around perimenopause and we 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 just want to figure out what's going on 
Yeah. Well, I just test. I'm happy to get your feedback about this. Mm. So I've been doing this for a couple of decades. I do the, I guess it goes by different names. I would do the glucose tolerance test with insulin. Mm. So I think that's also called the craft test or different. So it's basically, it's a challenge test. So you do a fasting measure of insulin and glucose, and then you take a glucose challenge, yeah. drink the drink, and then you measure insulin at the one and two hour mark. And I used, I've been, I do, did that when I was practicing in Sydney. I've been doing that here to a, some extent, although in New Zealand, that test costs a lot more for some reason yeah. <laughs> compared to Australia, which is kind of weird. But um, I feel like that's the most clear way mm. to know. I mean, other signs of possible insulin resistance, of course, would be um, high triglycerides mm. and body, well, body shape. I mean, waist height ratio is definitely a, a marker as well. Skin tags. Yeah. Yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts about that? What's, what, what are other, your other experts saying about diagnosing insulin resistance? Yeah, exactly what you've, you've talked about, high triglycerides. The, the insulin test, I didn't realize that so if someone were to be able to go to their doctor and the doctor was willing to order it, they could actually get like a, a craft-based test for, for insulin. I didn't realize that you could do that. The labs, the labs do that here. Oh, so I've been ordering it from my patients, um, but they're paying privately for yeah, it. Yes. And I te- I'll just share with you. I mean, a test that was like $65 in Australia here is costing over 100 So I, I don't, you know, more. So I don't, it depends on the lab, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... I feel like for some people that's for not, not some patients are just we can just almost just assume that's what's going yeah. on based on body shape and triglycerides and everything yeah. and sometimes I'll just in that case I might do a fasting insulin which is quite easy to order just as a a baseline mm. but it, I guess if I'm really not sure and want to you know determine insulin resistance or not or to what degree I would do the full test yeah yeah no that's really good to know because I was going to ask your opinion on fasting insulin and how useful that might be well as you know, it's not perfect. Mm. I, I guess my perspective is if it comes back very elevated, which I just had a patient yesterday where it was extremely like, you know, four times above the reference range, mm. which fit the clinical picture, yeah. then I'm like, yeah, I think that's, that's real. You know, I think if it comes back in the normal range, it's not a guarantee that there's no insulin resistance. It does fluctuate somewhat. And it seems to, so I guess, you know, i I've heard different criticisms of it. I, I would never say that you can just fasting insulin is the end all or be all. I think, you know, you have to put it in context. Yeah. And Lara, what about the Dutch test for you? Have you used it? What, what's your opinion? Like I have used it with a number of clients and found it really interesting from a cortisol perspective. And also, of course, you know, looking at the, the hormones. But I mean, you're, I mean, you've been working this for 20 years. You've probably seen People talk about tests all the time and different tests. So when, when it comes to measuring hormones, what do you do? Yeah, I don't do the Dutch test. Yeah. I'm not anti it. I, you know, I guess what I'd say is at the end of the day, I'm not sure what that has gained. Like, yeah. I guess in terms of testing for my patients, because there's only so much money that they have to put towards testing. You know, I'm just conscious of that as well. I don't want it to become complicated or expensive for them. Mm. Very often I have other priorities. So I guess in the terms of assessing in the perimenopausal patient, which is who we're talking about today, the insulin testing is usually pretty high on the yeah. list. Um, I'm often testing thyroid antibodies to see if there's an autoimmune thyroid picture because that's so common. I'm often checking iron yeah. because that's, I'm checking B12 because that's common. I'm checking C-reactive protein. Those are the kinds of things I do. I mean, that's kind of boring in a way, but those are often 
things that need to be done. I mean, the low iron, especially oh, you get yeah. a lot of women, they're just exhausted because they're of the crazy heavy periods of perimenopause, which we haven't talked about yet. But yeah, so in terms of there, I guess I would say it's not usually in my experience that helpful to measure estrogen and progesterone during this time be, because they, those hormones fluctuate yeah. all over the place, yeah. not just daily, but hourly. Like, so I guess, you know, I, I, in terms of the estrogen progesterone side of things, I'm going more by content, like by what their cycle's doing mm. and their symptoms. And also on the progesterone side of thing, things, really tracking basal body temperatures is actually the, one of the best ways to get an idea of not just a, a snapshot progesterone rating, but a picture of what the luteal phase looks like. So hopefully your listeners know what I'm talking about with the duration of progesterone production. Mm. So the, what happens with perimenopause, it's not just that we make less progesterone every day. We actually have a shorter luteal phase. So we're making less progesterone in the cycle yeah. in total. And so that can be kind of useful to assess. I mean, you could almost just basically just from context from eight, you can assume that a 40 something woman is going to be lower in progesterone yeah, yeah. than she used to be. Yeah. I, you don't need to confirm that with a test. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my short answer about Dutch testing. I, I mean, in terms of the cortisol side of things, yeah, I think certainly that would be one of the better ways to measure cortisol, which I don't normally do. I, I guess I, I assess stress levels and cortisol levels based on, um, again, symptoms, yeah, yeah. You know, sleep quality, yeah. energy in the morning. You could, I also look at this physical signs of high cortisol exposure, right? Which you may know that sort of, um, what they call like that little fat deposit at the top yes. of the spine. Yeah. Um, abdominal weight gain to some extent, you know, can be a sign of high cortisol. So. Yeah. And, have, and yeah. Um, that around the torso under the bra line, I've heard other practitioners say that that's a sign of, you know, that cortisol fat around there. Is that something well, you've seen? It's also, a, it's also part of insulin resistance, yeah. which it's hard to tease those apart because obviously high cortisol, chronically high cortisol promotes insulin resistance yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. I, I am, I'm a, am an Grants with you, Lara, regarding symptoms and treatment outside of testing, because I can pick up a lot from those basic blood measures that you're talking about. And oftentimes when we do do a Dutch, it's not because I think it's, it's more on the basis that the client, you know, would like it rather than that I've suggested it. Um, because they're like, oh, no, I really want to get a Dutch test to kind of have a look. And I'm like, okay, yeah, awesome. It won't probably change my treatment path. Yeah. But they want to know. I say to, the, I, I say to them, look, there's no point. Well, I don't want to come down too strong yeah, on yeah. it. But I, I, I generally try to discourage them from, I just want to talk about, let's put that money towards a magnesium supplement or, you know, another appointment with me in a month, which might be helpful. You yeah, know, I sort yeah. Of, I'm just trying to budge, you know, I'm trying to budget for them. I guess if they, if they have unlimited funds, that's different. Yeah, yeah, completely. Then the functional testing is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, Lara, talk to me about the, like, what are, what are the symptoms of, of this kind of perimenopausal state? You mentioned dysmenorrhea or heavy periods. Is that something that women often experience? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm just opening my own book oh, to read the, brilliant. <laughs> this is, I sometimes refer to my own book, which is, I think, I don't know if other people do that. Oh no, I, I um, Google myself all the time about a topic yeah, I like, know I've written I, about. Yeah. What did I say about that? So no, the reason I'm, ref, I'm looking at it is this is, um, so endo, Canadian endocrinology professor, Geraldine Pryor who's a scientist as well as a clinician. She's amazing. She helped me with this book. Mm. So she fact-checked it and I quote her a lot. And I used her diagnosis of perimenopause list. Yeah. So that's what I've got in front of me. So she says, 
in terms of diagnosis of perimenopause, just to circle back to what we were just talking mm. about, there's no blood test. Mm-hmm. FSH is usually normal or fluctuating all over the place. Estrogen and progesterone could show anything really because <laughs> they fluctuate all over the place. Yeah. So diagnosis of perimenopause is by symptom. Mm. And she says, according to Professor Pryor, a midlife woman with, even with regular cycles is likely to be in perimenopause if she has any three of the following nine. So new onset of heavy or longer menstrual flow, mm-hmm. shorter menstrual cycles counting from day one to day one, like, you know, um, usually less than 25 days. Mm. So is that that as shortening of the luteal cycle you were just describing? It's both actually, okay. both the whole cycle shortens is because of, um, in part because of higher FSH in general mm. will stimulate the follicles to ovulate sooner. Mm. Um, a uh, new sore, swollen, or lumpy breast. Breast pain is a big thing. As you saw in my book, there was mm. like multiple patient stories about breast pain. Um, new mid-sleep waking, increased menstrual cramps, onset of night sweats. That's a big one in particular, premenstrually. Um, new or markedly increased migraine, frequency of migraine headaches, new or increased premenstrual mood swings, and weight gain mm. without changes in exercise or eating. We just talked about that. Yeah, so interesting. That, I think that paints a pretty good picture of what could be happening okay so yeah um now you mentioned magnesium yes um which you like you're like if there's anything anyone could possibly do it's take more <laughs> magnesium know. how are, are we are we deficient in our intake or we, do we just need more like what's what's that about lara and because I, I want to talk to you about you know some of the real um the things that might move the needle for women yeah did you see that um british medical journal heart we'll put it in the we'll link in the show notes about magnesium subclinical magnesium deficiency yes. and how that may be that one of the main driving factors of insulin resistance i mean everyone's got a different viewpoint as to what's driving the epidemic of insulin resistance mm. i suspect i'm sure we agree that it's multiple things but the possibility of subclinical magnesium deficiency is on the table and in that article they make the case that our food supply is lower in magnesium than it used to be mm. and it's from probably soil depletion, um, various things. So I, I think there's less magnesium coming in. There's also, it's quite easy to deplete the mineral with stress, exercise, caffeine, sugar, alcohol. Yeah, I think to some extent sugar depletes it. So there's various reasons why our cellular mitochondrial levels of magnesium are potentially lower than our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's, I think, one of the reasons it's so important. It just feels like clinically it just is a, quite a simple thing. So I talk about the combination of magnesium and taurine, yeah. the amino acid taurine. And when I turned in my manuscript, my editor said, she's like, oh, I guess we should put magnesium and taurine in the water supply. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be hard to put taurine in the water supply, but, you know. Um, yeah, so it, it's quite a simple intervention and quite safe. Mm. Um, magnesium's generally safe apart from anyone with pre-existing kidney disease which is rare yeah. uh, so i say just try it try some of these excellent formulas we can get in australia new zealand with combination magnesium taurine and i would estimate that for about 50 percent of my perimenopausal patients presenting with night sweats mm. that's the only thing they need to do wow that is yeah so what's happening what's magnesium what's taurine doing Multiple things, as you can imagine, yeah. you know, magnesium, they both have a calming effect on the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Taurine is a neurotransmitter, arguably. I wrote a blog post about that. Yeah. Quite similar to GABA and glycine mm-hmm. in its shape mm-hmm. and its effects. 
Um, they both support mitochondrial energy and insulin sensitivity. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. The brain loves them. Yeah. And yeah, so because I'll, I'll often with my patients, I'll give like different tiers of treatment. I'll be like, hey, we're going to start with um, quitting alcohol and magnesium plus taurine. That would be a common thing. It's like, and then you're going to see how you go. And then if you, if you need it, then we'll progress to, if you're still having night sweats or migraines, then we'll progress to putting in place some progesterone, micro, oral microdose progesterone, for example. And this is what I mean by about 50% of them never get to that. They, they're like, it's, I'm good. I don't need, and fair enough too. It's like, they, from their perspective, I don't want to unnecessarily add another treatment yeah. intervention if i don't need it it's like they come back to me and they're fine so i'm like well that was good that's good yeah. that's an easy you know you got the result from the the first step okay so now you mentioned alcohol in there and i have heard yeah. you say as well like i've heard you talk about you know just the effectiveness of magnesium and taurine and then the removal of alcohol and yeah i have to say lara <laughs> when i talk to my clients about taking alcohol out even though they've just said to me i used to be able to have a glass of wine, and now I can't sleep because of it. Yes. What changes with our body's ability to tolerate alcohol, and why is it one of those first kind of um, lines of treatment? Okay, it's a really good question. So I just had conversations with patients about it yesterday, and then I came away with the statement that perimenopause and alcohol are like oil and water, right? They don't mix. They just really do not mix. And in terms of the mechanisms, I think it's the the rewiring in the brain it's the recalibration of the energy system the brain uh, it's probably other things i mean i'm not quite sure what all the mechanisms are but it's pretty consistent that women say if they can stop and i know it's not always that easy yeah. but if they can stop their sleep the yeah those night sweats stop and the sleep improves and the sleep quality improves and one thing i want to say because i often hear even from a patient yesterday sort of heard you know conflating oh alcohol and coffee i have to remove alcohol and coffee i'm gonna say i'm gonna go on record as saying we we should not conflate those two things like you know yeah. not to say coffee uh, you know i'm more neutral about coffee i drink coffee i think obviously if you have anxiety or insomnia you shouldn't be drinking coffees in the afternoon mm. and obviously some women don't feel good on it and that's fine i think sometimes there's actually an immune reaction to coffee for some women oh, yeah of an inflammatory reaction but in any no in no universe is coffee as corrosive to hormonal health as alcohol like and i mean i, I know i'm coming down really hard on it i i yeah i mean i, I wrote a quite a big section in the book about it and the whole narrative that alcohol is um anti-aging which was pretty much bs yeah um See, Lara, <laughs> I just spoke to Dr. James O'Keefe, cardiologist, and he has half a glass of red wine every night. And when Baz, who um, he produces the podcast, I'm like, oh, he is going to be so thrilled to hear that. Um, but you're so right. Like when you have these obvious symptoms around the waking up at night, that kind of fractured yeah. sleep, and, you, and, and you've had a glass or two of wine. And the other thing for women in particular is the breast cancer risk. Yeah. So even moderate drinking, like even a few drinks in a week, ha- increases the risk of breast cancer as much as hormone therapy. Amazing. Not to overstate it. I mean, all this, full disclosure, I do have the occasional beer. You've seen me do yeah. it. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm not, and, and in the book, I, I really try to debunk the idea that it's anti-aging, but I kind of take the position, okay, I think we can stop saying it's good for you. Yeah. You know, in terms of how bad it is for you, in extreme moderation, it's not that bad like you know I, I, I don't want people to go away think thinking i can't just have you know the occasional glass of wine fine yeah you know that's but yeah the the weekly drinking and well you probably know from your clients i mean i've i've got patients who 
drink three or four glasses a night. Yeah. And that's how they're coping with perimenopause. And that is, those are women I want to help. Like, I just want to reach out to them. It's like, if you're in that situation, find help, find a way to other ways to calm your nervous system. It's usually not about just muscling through and because alcohol is addictive. Mm. So, and also women are stressed and not sleeping. So it's about putting other things in place and then depending on their degree of addiction, you know, yeah, getting some counseling or support around it. It's, it's a very real problem. I, I don't know the frequency in the population, but I'd say in the 40 something women, drinking is common. Uh, and I agree. And it's re- what I find really interesting is when I ask clients about their alcohol intake and they put down a number on the form and it seems, it's either seems quite light and then in my head, and I don't mean to do this, but I know that for a lot of people, we under-report alcohol consumption and like our one yep. glass is in fact like quite a, a large pour. They put down these large amounts of alcohol and they're like, yeah, that's you know just what I'm doing. And I don't know about you, Lara, but a lot of clients I'm talking to now they, 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 the conversation begins, well, you know, before COVID, I was X, Y, Z with my health behavior. But since then, since lockdown, which now is a year ago, really for, you know, that the big Mm -hmm. lockdown, but they're still unable to kind of break out of those habits, which aren't really doing them a disservice. This is, you know, this is same for a lot of people, not just necessarily perimenopausal women. And I think it's we underestimate the emotional burden around what's going on with COVID. And I agree. this is what we're seeing with regards to that alcohol intake. I agree. I feel kind of helpless to do much about Yes. I mean, it's, it, again, so it's not just finger wagging no. at people saying, oh, you know, stop drinking. It's like, yeah, people are in distress and for various reasons, because it's been a very stressful mm. year. Mm. And... When people need help, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It's um, no, I agree, yeah. and I, I think as well because you are you are potentially surrounded surrounded with other people who might drink in a similar amount. It's quite normalized, I think. Yeah, yeah. and it's what I really don't like. What I'd like to see change. What I will finger wag about, <laughs> yeah, know, is the messaging on social media, the jokiness about you know wine and menopause. Yeah. In fact, someone who was, I think some, actually, I think we're talking about like menopause women describing it as like calling wine their menno juice, you know, they're oh, what gee. they need to get through. It's yeah. like, like, you know, I don't want individual women to feel bad, but I really want to give the message out to any social influencers out there. Like, please, please be careful around any messaging around alcohol, because the more we kind of glorify it or make jokes about mm. it, or it's, that's harming women. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I, I will say as well on your coffee stance, when we had that conversation in July last year, yeah, you know, I think I just had a little like happy dance in my head yeah. <laughs> that, we, that yeah. we were on the same page. It's like, yeah, actually, it's not that bad. Um, it's a herbal medicine. Is it? That's my position. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> That's my position. Yeah, I do, I do um, <laughs> like that you acknowledge that potentially the, is it the polyphenols might have an an immune response or beneficial but also an immune response with some people yeah the polyphenols are going to be beneficial generally for different disease risks um i don't know i actually i don't know quite what the immune some people some people kind of autoimmune type people react negatively to coffee and i i don't know there's all different theories is it the mold toxins is it i I don't know is it a mimicry of some kind i'm just I generally I don't ask my patients to avoid coffee as a rule but I'm just acknowledging if anyone who's listening who's kind of thinking oh my experience with coffee has been really negative I'm just I'm just saying I see you I hear you (laughs) like I'm willing to say you know 
it's I'm willing to acknowledge that coffee is seems to be troubling for some yeah. people. Yeah. So Lara, along with um removing people's um alcohol, I also and, and I'm the same and people hate me saying this, but I also suggest that they take out dairy from their diet, even for like yeah. thirty to sixty days, sixty days usually, to see whether that is gonna move the needle at all on their symptoms. Can you talk to talk to us about why dairy may have been fine earlier and now it now people might be responding negatively what is it about dairy or cow dairy that might be the issue i think it's a lot to do with mast cell reaction and histamine so it's an immune reaction some this would be my my take on mm. it some people both sexes but when here we're talking about women have a negative immune reaction to a1 casein yeah that's i'm convinced of that it's to do with whether in the gut you have the enzyme that makes something called BCM7, which is a quite an immune reactive molecule. I would estimate it's about one in three. Okay. I think you and I have had this conversation before. I don't know. I feel like I'll, I would just acknowledge there are some people out there who seem absolutely fine with dairy. Mm. And from their perspective, they're probably thinking, I don't get it. You know, why are you telling people to come off dairy when dairy is so healthy for all these other reasons, you know, protein and nutrition and things like that. But there, I'd say about one in three people, people have a significantly negative reaction to A1 casein. Mm. You can usually get around that with goat or sheep or, you know, A2 only animals. But I think one of the reasons that why it flares up worse in perimenopause, a big part is the heavy periods. I mean, that's often why I'm asking women to take a break from it, similar to you, like two or three months mm. to see if it will lighten their flow or help with adenomyosis, which is a you know, condition of heavy bleeding. And often it does because often, because clinically I'm like looking at the whole picture and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, you're showing signs that you're this dairy reactive kind of person. For example, I'll just share with your listeners. It's like recurrent tonsillitis or chest infections when you were a kid mm. that you outgrew, but then, you know, it's basically the immune dysfunction has kind of shifted to another sphere, yeah. um, acne that you outgrew. Mm. And then, you know, that's was potentially aggravated by dairy. So yeah, and the, the histamine response is directly involved in heavy flow because the uterine lining is full of mast cells mm. um, that also release heparin, mm -hmm. which is a blood thinner and contributes to the heavy flow. And then the histamine response is involved in the mood symptoms, I think the insomnia symptoms to some extent. I talk about this in the book. So yeah, for some people, removing dairy can be an absolute game changer, like really dramatic for some people. And then for other people nothing at all yeah yeah and i yeah. suppose and i often say this to people is that eliminating this food will just allow you to be a bit more informed about it how it affects you so yeah. when you do reintroduce you can notice a change in symptoms and maybe it's not a forever removal but at least now you sort of have a clearer picture of what might work and what might not work agree and we should touch on um just the concerns around bone health yeah. because obviously you know long-term risk for bone density is a concern at menopause. I give a couple quotes in the book, pretty much debunking the idea that we need dairy for bone health. Yeah. I mean, bone health is about lots of things. Mm. And certainly we do need a baseline calcium intake. Um, but it's possible to get that from non-dairy foods. And also the A2 type dairy that I'm describing also has calcium. So yeah. I it, put it this way, being perimenopausal is not 100% not a reason to start guzzling glasses of milk to try to help your bones because arguably that's going to push you in the other direction if it's causing gut inflammation and you know, inflammation in the body. The, a big place that women are getting dairy is in their milky coffees too. Yeah. So I encourage a shift to like almond or coconut milk or something. Yeah, yeah. And I saw you actually, um, so one in your book, which we will not have an opportunity to 
get into menopause, postmenopause today, but you, you yeah. have a whole section on bone loss and the nutrients yeah. that might help support healthy bones. In addition to, of yeah. course, what you say in the book, and as we both know and have talked about, activity and doing that weight-bearing activity. Muscle. Muscle. Right? Muscle is amazing. Totally. <laughs> like, I think I've, I have definitely, yeah, even just myself personally, the last four or five years, I'm like, yeah, okay, I've probably one of the best anti-aging things to do is to maintain some muscle mass, especially, um, yeah, lower body and glutes. And that, that's anti-aging. It's important for, for bone health and everything, brain. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I've heard people describe it as the, it's our muscle of longevity. And I do actually, or our organ of longevity. And yes. I do love that, love that quote. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that you posted a research article actually on Twitter that, that actually showed that calcium intake in that kind of our older years, there is no really good relationship between calcium intake and osteoporosis. Was that what I would have seen you post? Between calcium supplementation. Supplementation, thank you. Yeah, so this, what the, reason, uh, the quotes I include is there's, real, there's no evidence for heavy dairy intake mm. preventing osteoporosis and there's no, intake, there's no you know, clear evidence for heavy calcium supplementation. In fact, as you know, heavy calcium supplementation without magnesium is a risk for cardiovascular risk yeah. so on the calcium side of things I, I mean i had someone else kind of question I, i'm open to people taking a little bit of calcium and combined with magnesium so i'm not totally anti it but i just feel like the focus for bone health needs to be on other things yeah yeah absolutely yep. and with those other things like the vitamin d and the k2, k2 yeah, yeah 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 gut health yeah muscle yeah. yeah immune health because you know that our bone building cells bone remodeling cells are our immune cells mm. Amazing. Yeah, they just re remodeled. Like they come from the same lineage as immune yeah. cells. Yeah. And I um I spoke to Dr. Stuart Gray about the importance of omega three and he in one of his studies he looked at healthy older individuals who could not exercise, they were able to maintain bone by taking omega three, which was actually, which was super interesting. So yeah, you know, that's uh I think it really speaks to there are there seem to be there there are no superfoods or super nutrients, but there are certainly really helpful components of the diet that do more than their fair share of um, helping us out. For sure. Um, Lara, zinc. Are we able just to touch briefly on zinc? Because I, I yeah. know it's such an important nutrient. Well, it's, it, it's helpful for mood. It's helpful for skin. Um, it's helpful for bones. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's one of the ones I, I discuss quite a lot. And the main um, risk group, I guess, in terms of zinc is anyone who's dabbling or leaning to a plant-based diet. So we've talked about that, that the best food source of zinc is animal foods, yeah. you know, seafood and red meat. And so clinically, I see a lot of people are I'm worried about actual deficiency. Mm -hmm. And then also in terms of zinc supplementation, as you may have seen, like it can just really make a difference for people's mood and immune function and experience. Yeah. So it's one of those supplements that I do give quite a lot because it's easy, it's inexpensive. It's also, as you know, like it's, it just clears from the body quite, like it's quite safe because you basically it's, um, doesn't stay in the body very long. I guess the only long concern about zinc is at very high dose, like, you know, 60 or 80 milligrams, which is, I don't normally give that high. It, it can deplete copper. So that's a consideration. Mm. But otherwise, it's, yeah, one of my, and in terms of zinc, I just have to weigh in on something. Mm. I don't know if this is um, controversial or not, but like there's all different narratives about why we need zinc. Like there's the whole kind of pyrrol side of things, oh, yeah. which... Part of my, my clinician brain, anyway, you know, the way I see it is I don't, 
I suspect there's several mechanisms by which zinc works, and I don't necessarily attribute it, you know, to one narrative. Yeah, I think it's also important for um gut health, yeah. you know, gut integrity. Yeah. So, Lara, there are a number of ways that people can. So, so we mentioned magnesium, and as I understand, there aren't actually a, there are not very good ways with which we can measure magnesium because in the blood, you know, when you get a magnesium test in the blood, that might account for you know a small amount of your actual overall body magnesium stores. How do you best measure zinc? Yeah, so I'll confirm, agree with you that it's really, there's no point in trying to measure magnesium with serum or really anything, because most of it's inside the cells, inside mitochondria. I do sometimes order serum or plasma zinc. Like many tests, you know, it's not perfect. It's very much affected by like, you know, fasting status and um, lots of different things. So I will measure it sometimes just to get an idea but at the end of the day I'm still often just prescribing based on symptoms and context and diet and the other thing to caution is about is you don't want to read too much into it so I've certainly had patients who continue to have kind of a low serum zinc despite pretty heavy supplementation and I guess I would venture to say in a situation like that there could be some other reason that's you know keeping plasma zinc low and it's not necessarily the solution is not just to take more and more supplements Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's really good advice. And you're also a big fan of iodine. Yes. And that does require a little bit of discussion because iodine is one of the trickier supplements to use because it's one of the supplements that can do harm. Mm-hmm. You know, high dose iodine can be a problem for thyroid disease, especially autoimmune thyroid disease. So I almost always, I'd say almost in every case, try to assess thyroid pretty thoroughly before giving it. But if it's safe to give iodine, I often give it in, I try to give it in sometimes like the one to three milligram mm. range, mm. which is higher than the microgram, you know, a couple hundred micrograms that is sort of the RDI. It, um, it really helps to stabilize estrogen sensitive tissue. I think that's part of what's going on. The estrogen receptor seems to require it. Um, there's been a couple of papers about that just in terms of um, iodine reducing breast cancer risk. Mm. And it certainly can dramatically relieve breast pain, fibrocystic breasts. It seems to also help with premenstrual mood of perimenopause. I give it to reduce the risk of recurrent ovarian cysts. I find it quite helpful for endometriosis, adenomyosis. There's um, a bit of evidence that it might help with fibroid. I, I won't say prevention, but you know, risk reduction. Um, so it, it's quite an important nutrient for women in particular, yeah. I would say. Okay. Yeah, and I take it. I take about two, two milligrams a day. Yeah, I, I take about one milligram a day on the basis of not only our conversations, but also my doctor. So I've, you know, been oh, working good. with a doctor in and around yep. hormonal health and, and unlike, I suppose, magnesium and zinc, which, which probably people could take pretty safely just by grabbing good forms. And, and you certainly in the back of your book, you've got a whole list of your recommended brands, which yep. how helpful is that? Um, so yep. good. Um, but I, I agree with you with iodine. Like it is just a little bit more nuanced, I think, than, than the other ones. It is. Just, and just to alert people to what's going on with iodine on the market. I mean, in, in New Zealand, you can only buy low-dose ones. But if you're, if you're buying from overseas, you, without being really aware of what's going on, you could, order, you could buy a supplement that contains anywhere from like 150 micrograms to like 50,000 micrograms oh. per dose, right? Like it's, there's quite a range <laughs> Of, of opinions about how much so you just have to be really you know kind of careful and think it through and maybe talk with someone 
about how much iodine to take. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, you can get iodine in seafood, in yes. iodized salt. Yes. I, I used to think nori sheets were high in iodine, but I don't think they are actually. I think they're variable it's, or. Yeah, and also they have bromine, which competes potentially mm. with the uptake of iodine. I, I, I love seaweed. Same. You know, I eat seaweed, but I wouldn't rely on it as a source of iodine. No. Although I often, um, with my lunch, I'm like, is it lunch if it's not wrapped in a nori sheet? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of them. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like this is a bit of a um, kind of quick fire session with you, Lara, but there are just so many gems. I really want to know about soy. Like it's, I, I feel like soy over the last 10 to 15 years has been quite controversial, yet I feel almost like it's sort of reached a place where we're a little bit more sure about its potential impact on hormones. But can you describe kind of where you sit on, on soy and phytoestrogens? So there is a bit of a misunderstanding amongst the majority. I mean, I'm sure some people know what I'm about to say, but in general, phytoestrogens in women of reproductive age, mm. back to, you know, back to context, whether you're reproductive or not. So in a high estrogen state, phytoestrogens are anti-estrogen. Okay. I'm very clear on that. I actually have a little section about that in the book, um, which arguably is beneficial. In fact, from an evolutionary perspective, if we, there's some evidence, and I talk about this in the book, that those of us who descended from agrarian ancestors who were eating a lot of um, grains and legumes, we have a potentially dialed up estradiol production to compensate for the anti-estrogens in our diet. Mm. So that's for women. You know, the situation is a bit different for men. I think in terms of practically what, what does that mean? I think certainly as women, especially at reproductive age, it's totally fine to eat phytoestrogens in the diet. Like, you know, um, unprocessed soy foods, mm-hmm. I think are fine. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to fear them. I think once you get into the territory of processed soy, and that's a whole other thing, yeah. and, you know, soybean oil and things like that, I'm not a fan of any kind of processed food. Mm. And I guess from a hormonal perspective, so in women of reproductive age, it's anti-estrogen, which can be beneficial. Um, in women of menopausal age, there's going to be a mild estrogen effect from potentially from phytoestrogens, but not enough to really, like, not like the level of hormone replacement or anything or hormone therapy. Mm. The other effect is um, high dose soy can prevent iodine uptake and potentially suppress thyroid. I don't see that clinically very often, but if someone, I had a patient yesterday who's, she likes tofu is one of her main proteins Mm. and that's what she's going to be eating for now. And that's as opposed to the situation of no protein, I'm quite happy for her to have tofu. So um, in her case, because I said, well, we also need to have some iodine in place to kind of compensate for that. So that would be my short version no that is good yeah. and you know as i understand it that you know soy is in the modern food supply like quite a cheap source of protein so you'll see these plant-based foods that'll say high protein and then you look at the back and they've got um the isolate the isolated soy protein in it okay i'm not a fan of that. i yeah. think you and i are on the same yeah. page like those heavily processed protein meat substitutes oh. like I, I don't even know what to say like they look some of them are not as bad as others but a couple times I've looked at the ingredient list mm. and it's like soy isolate, gluten, yeah. vegetable oil. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> like, how, yeah, how yeah. yeah. I, like, I would not. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of those no. kinds of foods. I'm no. not either. And, no. and again, like with what you were saying with processed food, you've also got muesli bars and you've got cracker. You know, you've got all of it. That it's prolific uh, yeah. in the food supply. Yeah. But of course, if people were having edamame beans, organic tofu yeah. tempeh. 
a bit of soy sauce. Yeah. I mean, women don't need to be fearful of soy sauce, mm. you know, unless they're gluten sensitive, in which they need to get a gluten free yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. But you know, it, like this kind of fear around soy, yeah, overblown is totally misplaced. And just to put it in perspective, okay, soy-based foods do not increase the risk of breast cancer. For example, if anything, it's the opposite because they have an anti-estrogen effect. Yeah. Alcohol, on the other hand, I mean, just to circle, <laughs> like I have patients who've been, you know, assiduously avoiding soy sauce, but still drinking wine. I'm like, okay, let's, yeah. let's back to the drawing board here. This is, let's really talk about what, what substances are risky and yeah. which are not. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. I have women who, <laughs> who do the same with sugar and carbohydrate, yet drink a lot of wine. Yeah. And it's yeah. just that cognitive dissonance, right? It's just. Well, it's messaging. I mean, it's, it's yeah, a lot of unnecessary fear-based messaging mm. around probably around carbs and around soy mm. and yeah and lara i also if it's okay i've just got two more things i need to ask you about yes. okay. progesterone versus progestin and now i had a conversation with a gp and she disagreed that they were different but as i understand <laughs> they are different they are very different yeah here's a, this might help yeah. estrogen is a generic term yeah that a that can be applied to the est- estradiol that we make from our ovaries, to estrone, to ethanol estradiol, which is the synthetic estrogen in the pill, to plant estrogen. So this is where the confusion comes from, I think. Estrogen is a generic term. Progesterone is not. Mm. So progesterone is the hormone progesterone that we make. It is distinct from all the various myriad of progestins that are out there in its molecular structure and its effect in all different ways. I mean, mm. in the books, in both my books, I kind of list s- some of the ways that they're different, yeah. but here's one of the big ways that they're different. Progesterone converts in the brain to a neurosteroid called allopregnolone, yeah. which is arguably highly beneficial. Some women have kind of a negative reaction to it. So that's sort of maybe a, for another day, but in general, that's a beneficial hormone, beneficial neurosteroid. Pro- no progestin converts to allopregnolone. Mm. So right there, you've got one difference. Yeah. And then there's just, the, the differences are just, there's just so many of them. I mean, the other difference, I guess, other example is that progesterone is anti-androgen, yeah. which in women is a good thing. Many, not all, obviously, because there's different kinds of progestins, but many of the progestins are androgenic. Yeah. Or they're actually derived from testosterone. And so that's why they can cause skin breakouts or hair loss because they have a testosterone-like effect. Yeah. And they promote insulin resistance because they're testosterone-like. So just, I mean, that's just a, the tip of the iceberg. The other thing would be, on, sorry, now you got me going, on breast cancer risk. Yeah. So and this is pretty clear in the research that most, what appears to be is that progestins increase the risk of breast cancer. And that's probably where the risk from conventional HRT or hormone therapy came mainly from the progestin. Yeah. Progesterone via several lines of evidence appears to reduce the risk of breast cancer. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite important yeah yeah and i and i really appreciate in your book that when you discuss the difference between progesterone and progestin um you also have like over 300 references not related to that topic but just <laughs> yeah. in your book because it's yeah you know, a lot of what you're suggesting does go against some conventional kind of treatment options because so, i know some women who i put on the uh, put on hormone oral contraceptive or no contraceptive therapy to treat endometriosis in their late 40s and to kind of deal with heavy periods and things like that which which as you point out and I think this might come from Professor it does Professor Pryor yeah yeah yeah, like that's not the most appropriate treatment 
She, yeah, she's pretty clear on mm. it. You know, she, the, um, your perimenopause is not the time for the pill. Yeah. I mean, I would argue maybe this never is really a good time for the pill, but perimenopause, no. And just to mention Professor Pryor again, she has been doing this for decades. Yeah. She's been on a mission to try to raise awareness about progesterone as the second hormone that is equally important to estrogen and try to debunk some of these crazy myths about progesterone that are out there, including that progesterone is bad, that progestins are the same. Like there's so many parts of this conversation that need some clarity. I mean, the other thing is that there's no, just to be clear, there's no progesterone in any type of hormonal birth control. That's one of my messages as well. Yeah, no, that's great. And and you also mentioned that you know, now in New Zealand, it's much more available for women to go to their doctor and actually ask for micronized progesterone, like the actual, we don't have to order yep. necessarily a cream from, you know, overseas. No. It's called Eutrogestin here. Mm-hmm. And it can, and I provide all, you know, speaking, talking points with your doctor kind of ways to navigate that and try to obtain it if, if it's appropriate. I yep. really appreciated that in your book because it's such a hard conversation to have with your doctor to be in the real advocate for your health when they are coming at it from just a different perspective. And I talk to so many clients who say, my doctor wouldn't let me do this. My doctor wouldn't order Mm. this test. And it's difficult to, because the doctor is a voice of authority for so many people. My experience with doctors in New Zealand is there's open channels for communication. One of the tips I give in the book is, you know, I provide some, you know, provide this document to your doctor. And these are all scientific documents. These are from Professor Pryor, you know, and then offer to maybe leave it with her. Yeah. Like you don't have to, because an appointment can be stressful. You're tra- the doctor's kind of feeling like, you know, all sorts of things are coming out. Like, but it might just be, okay, like this is the part one of the conversation. I might just leave this information with you. Come back next week. Just being conscious of the doctor's time as well. Yeah, you know, be- because they're under pressure. Uh, a GP is not an easy job, I don't think. You know, they, they do a lot of work for arguably not that much money. You know, I feel, I, I do feel for them. And I, I certainly don't want to, I don't never want, to be in the position of, you know, trying to tell a doctor what to do. It's not about that. It's like just maybe, you know, communicating some of this other information. And most doctors are open to it. That's my overwhelming experience. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think it's more the perception that their doctor may tell them off rather than their reality. And particularly because you've got the tips on how to talk to the doctor and and also that approach that you just mentioned, like that just alleviates a lot of the fear, I think, for people. Yeah, exactly. because doctors want to help. Totally, they do. <laughs> Just like every, yeah, they do. Um, Larrett, yeah. one last thing. Yeah. Fasting for women. What's your take for women in that perimenopausal kind of age, the older age? I'm an agnostic I on like this topic. It. You yeah, know, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I actually think it's a kind of a watch this space. Like I certainly I see arguments for and against. It makes sense to me that some level of, you know, restricted eating window or something like that is going to be helpful for reversing insulin resistance. I I think it really, again, comes back to age, um, stress level, whether there's insulin resistance or not. If there's any tendency already to under eating, obviously fasting is going to be a disaster. But I don't know. I think there's lots of factors in in it. I think, you know, forcing you, like I'm forcing yourself to eat breakfast, especially if it's like milk and cereal at 7 a.m. is not good yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. not help not helping women like you know i think some if they say oh i feel better waiting until 10 o'clock to mm. eat i'm like i think that's fine i think and then what i say is you know don't eat breakfast until you're hungry for breakfast within reason mm. and then eat protein yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my position yeah, yeah. like the first time you eat eat some protein yeah. and yeah i don't know what are your views i'm curious like do you have a 
you know, a firm view on fasting one way or the yeah. other? Or? No, I, I'm absolutely aligned with you with regards to that. Like, you know, when we're talking about insulin resistance, um, when we're talking about, you know, if you look at the literature around fasting in women, like where it is most successful is in the older, older age yes. bracket, you know, of, of yeah. women who you and I may see like the, you know, 60% of our clients might fit into the same kind of population with which fasting has proven to be really beneficial. Um, And then of course, when it comes to things like breakfast, if you're having breakfast and it's yogurt or milk, and we've just had that discussion about how dairy might not be beneficial, sort of almost makes the decision-making easier around the whole food side of things. But like you, I, I think my, my main concern around fasting is that when you look on social media, if you, you know, skip one meal, then potentially skipping two meals is better. Um, right. And if that fasting <laughs> yeah. window of 14 hours isn't long enough, well, hey, 20 is probably better, you know? Right. One piece of information that factors into it, there's so many factors, right? Like what is your stomach acid like? What is your circadian rhythm? At what time in the day do you actually start making enough digestive juices to eat, right? Like yeah. there's that, which depends on health to a large extent, depends on your... Um, digestive capacity on your nutritional status um but one of the things that factors in is the t- is the way protein helps to entrain or signal circadian rhythm so i'm pretty convinced yeah that having eating some protein by in the book i say 10 a.m mm-hmm. is a way to tell your body well to first to give your body some protein to get going on that kind of preload some pr- front load some protein but also yeah, tell your body, okay, it's morning, it's daytime, this is, you know, and that can help as well. Yeah. So that's, this, I guess that would be my main hesitation in sk- about skipping breakfast entirely would be missing out on that opportunity for a protein signal. Yeah, and I think that's how I um, talk to my clients about it as well. And of course, you know, once you, I think the, the thing for me is I don't, I don't often go straight into a 16-8 with someone who's never done fasting. You know, it's a 16 yeah. fasting, eight hour eating window if we haven't stabilized the blood sugars and also if I feel like actually you're, you're struggling to meet your protein goals anyway. So actually having that protein is going to be far more beneficial than having the extended fasting window. Agree. And a lot of it's to do with the nervous system as well and sleep quality and yeah, yeah. all those things. Yeah. Lara, we've talked for <laughs> ages. We've barely scratched the surface actually. <laughs> um, and I feel like actually it was just that we we're sitting down just having one of the usual conversations that we might actually yeah. have. It's so fun to do a podcast with someone I know personally. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like that we've, we've seen each other in person. It's, it's, it's different, it, even though we're not in person right yeah. now. But, but we will yeah. be in a couple of weeks. We will be. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. Lara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. How can people find you? As if anyone needs to know, but you always have to ask. <laughs> I- I'm easy to find. I'm very boring. My blog is larabryden.com. Yeah. All my social media is at larabryden. And my two books, as you mentioned, are Period Repair Manual for Women of Any Age and Hormone Repair Manual for Women Over 35. Yeah. And, and what a wealth of information. It is just so, so helpful, Lara. I've learned so much from you over the years and continue to learn. And I love it. So thank you. And likewise, actually. I've, yeah. Learned from you, which is great. Lovely. Thanks, Lara. Thanks. All right, team, hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. And look, if you know of anyone that uh, would benefit from listening to this information, absolutely uh, share it with your friends. I'll post links to Lara's website and her books and her Instagram and Twitter feed 
on the show notes for this podcast as well as any other relevant sort of information that we talked about that you might want to delve a little bit further into. And next week on the podcast, I bring to you my conversation with the godfather of fasting, Professor Mark Matson, who I came across on an interview on STEM Talk like a number of years ago now, and he's got some excellent research. He was one of the very first people to look at fasting, and we talk about how his research kind of transitioned into uh, mainstream media and stuff as well. So that is next week. Until that time, though, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on my website mickeywillardin.com where you can sign up to my weekly email just pop your name in the little pop-up box on the email book a consultation with me or sign up to one of my meal plans I have fat loss plans keto longevity plan and I also just have a real food nutrition plan if you really just don't know where to start and you also get access to my brain when you sign up for the plans 24 7 to sort of pick it and ask any of your nutrition related questions in addition to being a member of my private facebook group and we're super active over there we're in our final kind of week and a half of monday's matter and i'm currently working on that spring edition now actually so don't delay people sign up there if you like the podcast please subscribe share it with other people and until next week have a fabulous week see you later